Right, as we uh, come on to the Acts of the Apostles now, uh, bear in mind that what we're really dealing with here is Luke's Gospel Part 2. It's the same writer who wrote Luke's Gospel and he's carrying the story on, uh, picking up where he left off in the Gospel with Jesus being transfigured and then moving on to basically the story of the spread of the Gospel um, throughout the then known world. And it's tonight as well that we're going to really see the significance that this writer, Luke, Gospel of Luke and Acts, is the only writer of any part of the Bible who was a Gentile. And tonight, we're, I mean, we, we noted that, that distinction when we did his Gospel, but tonight we're going to see the significance of it, that again we're now reading the only Gentile writer of any of the books of the Bible. Now we're going to um, dive straight in and in chapter 1 what Luke does is, is he runs through a, a brief resume of uh, the 40 years, uh, sorry the 40 days between Jesus being raised from the dead and when Jesus eventually ascended once and for all back into heaven. So the first chapter is a kind of a like, it's the, the overlap where the end of his gospel overlaps uh, with the beginning of Acts. And, um, and he, he begins with Jesus telling the disciples that they were to remain in Jerusalem until they were baptised with the Holy Spirit. Remember that he told them to go and preach the gospel you know, to the whole world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But after he rose again from the dead, Jesus told the disciples, but don't go anywhere, stay in Jerusalem until you have been baptised with the Holy Spirit. Now, they asked Jesus when the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel. And this kind of like sets the significance, really, of Luke being a Gentile writer. Because, of course, what the disciples would have been looking for as Jews was the fulfilment of all the promises in the Old Testament that when Messiah came, he would actually rule the earth. And that, you know, the nation of Israel would be top dog nation and that Messiah would actually rule them, that there'd be peace on earth and all this sort of thing. And that the kingdom of God would be finally come upon the earth. And so the disciples, they're kind of looking for this and they say to Jesus, you know, look, when, when is the kingdom going to be restored then? And, uh, and, and what Jesus tells them at that point is that it wasn't for them to know the timing. And of course, what you've uh, got to, to realise, and we'll be back to this here and there, is that of course, had Israel accepted Jesus for who he was, then the kingdom of God and the reign of Jesus on the earth would have happened 2,000 years ago. That there'd have only been the need for one coming. But of course, what happened, because Israel rejected him, then God's judgement on Israel was that the kingdom would pass to the Gentiles. So we have another period in history where Israel's future is kind of set aside and the means of salvation to the world becomes no longer Israel but becomes the Gentile church. Because although the church started off Jewish, it ended up mainly Gentile. That's the significance of Luke himself being a Gentile. And so what's happening is that the coming of the kingdom has now been postponed until after the church age. So that the restoring of the kingdom to Israel 
is going to come now, not at the first coming then, but at the second coming of Jesus. Because of course God in his foreknowledge knew that Israel was going to reject him. And so the point is the disciples are still looking for the literal coming of the kingdom on earth. And they didn't know at this point that it had been postponed by whatever the duration of the church age would eventually be. So, um, you know, sort of like, but what's going to happen in the meantime is that whereas the literal, external, worldly kingdom of God has been postponed until after the church age, nevertheless, the kingdom of God is going to come in the meantime in men's hearts simply by Jesus living in them. And of course this began to happen at Pentecost when the church was born and when they were baptised with the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's kind of the scene is set and we'll be picking up that theme um, as Luke does as we keep going. Um, and then he dives straight in and he tells us how the disciples uh, witnessed Jesus uh, ascending. Um, back to heaven and from his gospel we know that this was on the Mount of Olives near Bethany just a, a few miles outside of Jerusalem and as the disciples see Jesus ascend uh, two men in white appear um, obviously angels and, uh, and they tell them that Jesus will return in the same way that they had seen him go and so there's a reference to the second coming that as they now seen Jesus physically ascending to heaven that Jesus was physically one day going to come back. And of course, this was actually the reassurance to the disciples that although they were still scratching their heads, hey, where's the kingdom, man? You know, where's, where, you know, where is the rule of Messiah in Jerusalem? When the angel said, no, Jesus is coming back, then they could begin to understand, hey, yeah, it is going to happen. It's when he comes back, as it were. Um, and so the disciples, having seen Jesus, uh, ascending into heaven they returned to um, the place where they were staying and basically they spent the next few days together um, in, in prayer Jesus has said you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and so they're praying uh, that the Lord would answer that prayer um, and it it wasn't just the 11 um, you know sort of disciples there were various women there as well I mean obviously Jesus's mother Mary was there there'd have been wives of the apostles and you know blah 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 um, and all Jesus's half-brothers would have been there but others as well and uh, we know that this group was actually 120 strong so that when the day of Pentecost came there were 120 of them joined together now during this time all right just in the the days leading up to to Pentecost when they're actually baptized with the Spirit Peter raises the issue of look, who's going to replace Judas like you know he reads out scriptures in the Old Testament that were prophetic of it you know let his place another take etc etc and, uh, and and Luke tells us at this point what what eventually became of Judas obviously we saw in his gospel that Judas had you know betrayed Jesus for the money and blah 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 and um, but how eventually he kind of like you know sort of took the money back and gave it uh, back to the priests and um, the priests wouldn't accept the money uh, because it was blood money so they wouldn't put it into the temple treasury but uh, what they did is they they bought a field um, and uh, which I think was going to be used for you know burials and things like that and what happened was that Judas had gone to this field and he'd attempted to hang himself from a tree in this field so he, he went to actually commit suicide um, but he wasn't even able to do that because while, while he was trying what happened was that, the, um, that, that, that he fell headlong so he was trying to hang himself 
and he fell, he was probably fairly high up. And what happened was, as he hit the ground, he actually split open. He burst open his intestines, splunged all over the field. I mean, all, all very gory, but that was that was Judas's end. And uh, and the, the this actual field that the priests had bought, they they called it Akeldama, which is rather a nice name until you get the translation. It means field of blood, you know. And uh, you know, so Luke tells us that that is 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 what happened to Judas. Um, and and so Peter is is raising, hey, look, you know, we've got to replace this guy. And um, and two two names were put forward by all the people of um, you know, so the disciples, and um, and two guys who'd been with Jesus from the start. Um, one was called Joseph, um, who was also called Bar Sabbath, and was also called Justice. This is a bit like saying, you know, oh hi man, you know, what's what's your name? And oh, I'm I'm Bill, but people call me Fred or or, or, or John. You know, it's like they had loads of names. Anyway, there's Joseph called Bar Sabbath and Justice. All right, there's one bloke. The other bloke was Matthias, who fortunately just had one name, so it makes it a bit bit easier. So they they cast lots, um, and it fell to Matthias, and uh, so Matthias became like an honorary apostle, and so there were twelve of them again. You know, just just like there were. Uh, kind of t 12 tribes of Israel. Um, let me just, just, just raise very very quickly the question, was it right or wrong? Should, should Peter have been doing this? Um, and it, it's a difficult question to answer. I think you all know that I maintain that Paul was in fact the 12th apostle. He refers to himself as one born out of time. Um, but nevertheless, throughout Israel's history, the number of tribes varied. There weren't always 12 tribes of Israel. Because, for instance, at a certain point in history, uh, the tribe of Joseph became two tribes of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, and yet, on the, on the other hand, when they came into the land, the tribe of Levi had no inheritance actually in the land because they were the priestly tribe. And so one could argue that the 12 tribes of Israel kind of varied between 12 and 13 at, at certain times. So maybe is there a bit of scope there for the apostles to have varied between 12 and 13 so maybe Matthias was number 12 as was Paul number 12 in the same way that Manasseh and Ephraim replaced the tribe of Joseph maybe it doesn't matter much one way or the other I mean I still kind of veer on the side that I think Paul was Judas's replacement and that Peter kind of acted a little bit impetuously and out of turn here but it it doesn't matter too much one way or the other. Interestingly enough, we never hear of Matthias again after this. But then there were others of the 12 apostles that we don't hear of either. So, you know, I think you pay your money, uh, you take your choice. Right, then, then we move into chapter 2 and, and immediately we are at the day of Pentecost. And uh, this is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Sabbath, after the Passover. Uh, Pente, 50, all right. And uh, so this is 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. So their, their praying and replacing of Judas was all in that 10 days when the 120 of them were together praying. And uh, they're, they're kind of, they're, you know, they're still in the upper room. And, um, and that, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And here they receive what Jesus had called the promise of the Father. Here they receive what Jesus called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And of course, what we have here on the day of Pentecost is the birth of 
the church. So now Israel's time is up. The prophetic clock stops ticking for Israel. Israel is out. Israel is no longer the branches of God's vine. Israel as a nation is laid to one side under judgment, is replaced now by the Gentiles. Obviously Israel will be back in the future, but now the birth of the church happens. And we've been into the significance of all this on the, uh, you know, like for instance in the Salvation series, so I won't go into it um, now. And of course what happens is there's the sound of a rushing of wind, and there are uh, uh, tongues as of fire which are kind of appear on their heads. And I think what you've got there, the wind tends to represent God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Fire represents God's purifying holiness. Uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He's not called the powerful spirit, he's called the Holy Spirit. So you've got the two aspects there, power and holiness. And uh, you'll remember that they spoke in tongues. Um, but they spoke in tongues in such a way that no interpreters were needed. For this festival, all right, um, there would have been Jews from all over the then known world who would have, you know, most of the Jews didn't live in Jerusalem. They lived in other countries. They were Jews, but they spoke other languages. And uh, so they, they were here um, in Jerusalem at the time. And the church is coming to being, they've been filled with the Spirit, they're speaking in tongues, but they're speaking the languages of all the differing Jews who are there. And, and so the tongues they're speaking are actually the languages of the different countries from which the Jews were assembled in Jerusalem. And so therefore everyone heard them praising God and preaching the gospel in their own language. So they're speaking in tongues and yet it came out like prophecy because it didn't need um, interpreting in any way at all. So I mean a little bit um, unique there. And of course some, some people said, hey, they're, they're drunk. You know, this is what's going on. You know, they're kind of acting a bit, bit strange. And, um, and Peter, who, who becomes really the spokesman and representative of the apostles from this time onwards. Um, Peter rises to the occasion and, and he begins to preach. And um, he tells the crowd that they're not drunk. He says, look, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we haven't, you know, sort of had time really to get drunk, so it's not that. And what he does is that he, he, he quotes to them um, a very well-known prophecy uh, from Joel, and, um, and it's the prophecy, you know, that is, is, is concerned with, in the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it, it talks about wonders in the heaven, the, uh, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, you know, sort of signs in the heaven and all this kind of thing. And what Peter does is he says, look, this, what you're seeing, is the fulfilment of the prophecy of Joel. Now that's interesting, except that not one of the things that Joel says in his prophecy is happening here. So what on earth is going on? Because of course the point is, this prophecy in Joel, you know, like signs in the sky, the moon turned to blood, that is all what's going to be happening at the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus comes again and then establishes his kingdom. And what we have here is Peter now directly, in a way that the Jews would have understood, saying that the coming of the kingdom had been postponed. Now there's something else of great significance here as well, because in the Old Testament, speaking in tongues or foreign languages were a judgmental sign on Israel when God was saying that they were out of fellowship or under his judgment. 
And remember that God's final judgment on Israel at all times was that they'd be carted off by people from other lands. And so foreign languages, tongues, was a sign to Israel of judgment. And so really the significance here is that what Peter is saying, and it's a way that they would have understand, is that Israel has been cut out of the vine. You know, that the, the, the actual fulfilment of that prophecy of Joel has kind of been postponed until a future date, but something new is happening from this point onwards. And of course, what is happening from this point onwards is the creation, the coming into being of the church that has been grafted in, in Israel's place. Again, we see the significance of Luke, the writer of Acts, being himself a Gentile. And so really, what Peter is saying here, he says, this is the prophecy of Joel. And they're saying, what? That the prophecy of Joel isn't happening. And of course, that was exactly the point. But what was happening was speaking in tongues. And the Jews knew exactly what Peter was saying. And of course, remember, they were familiar with all Jesus' teaching, the parables that he told about how the workers in the vineyard were going to be destroyed because they kept rejecting the owner of the vineyard and that the vineyard was going to be given to another nation. All right. And, and so this is Peter setting the scene, you know, the, 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 the whole kind of caboodle. So again, this is the whole point of Acts, that what we have here is the laying aside of Israel and the creation of the church, which was going to end up largely a Gentile affair. And then Peter continues in his preaching, and I'll just give you the, the kind of the breakdown of, of the ground that he covers here as he's preaching to the crowds. He, he, he maintains that Jesus had been proven by the miracles he worked to be the Messiah. And he says that God handed him over by his own set purpose and foreknowledge to be murdered by the Jews. You know, and, and Peter's saying, you, you murdered him. This, this was not politically correct preaching, but this was the truth. And Peter goes on to say, but, but death couldn't hold Jesus. You murdered him. I mean, you murdered him, but you were, you know, this was all bringing about what God had decided in advance what was going to happen. And uh, he, he quotes, um, you know, Psalm 16, which is a, a prophetic psalm of King David that's talking about, you know, that sort of like Messiah, you know, that he wouldn't be abandoned to the grave. And the actual word grave there in the Greek is Hades, but used in the same way that Sheol was, was, was the name in the Old Testament just of the place of the dead and uh, you know sort of like King David in his Psalm 16 saying that how Messiah that, that he wouldn't be abandoned to death and that the Holy One wouldn't see decay I mean a prophecy from the Old Testament about the fact that Jesus was going to be raised again from the dead and uh, you know Israel knew that King David was a prophet and so here Peter quotes his prophecy saying can't you see this all ties in it all proves that Jesus was who he said he was and he's been raised again from the dead to prove it then he quotes from Psalm 110, which was one of Jesus' favourite psalms that he often quoted. And it was the psalm that starts off, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the point is that immediately what we have in that psalm is that we have the Lord, God, said to my Lord, David's Lord, God, sit at my right hand and if the point is that that psalm is is part of the old testament teaching that shows us that god in himself was more than one person that there was god the father and that there was god the son 
And remember, part of the problem that the Jews kept stumbling over was the idea of, um, you know, that sort of God could become a man and then suffer. I mean, they had a, a problem with that. And again, Peter quotes a psalm of David demonstrating that within the Godhead were at least two people. And of course, you put the whole of the, you know, sort of like the teaching of the Bible together, you get the Holy Spirit as well. And of course, you have the Trinity, that God exists in three persons. One God, three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so obviously what he's saying here is that what that psalm was all about, he's saying, look, Jesus, David's Lord, all right? God, the God of Israel, has said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, because Jesus had ascended into heaven. And so Peter is proving that everything that Jesus taught was true, and he's proving it from the Old Testament, which of course Israel accepted as being the word of God. And then he concludes his, his preaching by saying to them, look, this proves that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. But he ends it by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this, this was straight to the point of preaching. He made it quite clear that the Jews he was speaking to were responsible for Jesus' murder. Now then, Luke tells us that the people who were hearing, all, all these crowds, were cut to the heart and they, you know, they said, what, what must we do to be saved? Uh, we don't know whether Peter had finished what he was saying. It rather appears he was cut off halfway through, but they were convicted. They were crying out, how can we be saved? And Peter said, repent um, and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that fundamentally is the gospel the early church preached. Repent, be baptised in the name of Jesus, and uh, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very different, sadly, for an awful lot of what passes as evangelism today, you know, when we're sort of trying to kind of like tempt people to follow Jesus because he'll make their life so much better in so many ways. I mean, Jesus will make life so much better in so many ways. Heaven's sake, God commands all men everywhere to repent. The issue is their sins. That is the issue. And in our evangelism, the issue is people are lost in their sins. That's the issue. That's the That's why we need to be saved. And, um, and then verse 40, Luke actually says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded. So this, this, this is all heartfelt stuff, and it's not mincing of words either. And remarkably, 3,000 people became Christians that day and were baptised. That's a long day. That's a wet day as well. Crumbs. And Luke tells us that in the, the days and the weeks, and indeed the years that followed, that they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, so they had to get Bible teaching. Fellowship, sharing of their lives together. The breaking of bread, which is obviously like, you know, like that simply means eating together and, and in and out of each other's homes and obviously the love feast um, on the Sundays and prayer. And they were the things that these people devoted themselves to. And it said that, uh, you know, that people were filled with awe and the many miracles done by the apostles. And, and so there was a real outpouring of the spirit and lots of miracles being worked as well. And, and people were just in, in awe. And, um, and Luke tells us as well that, that from that point on they, they held everything in common 
um, that when when it was needed, people would sell goods that they had so that the money could be given to others who were in need. Um, it, it, it sounds on the surface a bit like a commune, but it wasn't a commune at all. It was simply the great sharing that went on amongst them. It wasn't that they renounced personal ownership or anything like that. They all had their own houses and you know their own whatever, but, but, but such was the sharing that, that no one was, was in, in need. And uh, they met together daily in the temple courts, which you know would have been what they were doing before they became Christians. But obviously now it proved a ready meeting place for them all as well. And um, and they broke bread in each other's homes daily. Again, breaking bread, just simply having each other round for a meal. And and this was daily. Every day, people from the church were in each other's house. It doesn't mean that everyone in the church had someone round every day. But that every such was the in and out that every day people were together in the church that was that that was kind of the push and uh, and Luke tells us that that the Lord added daily to their number of, of those who were being saved and um, you know so so that was wow what a what a lighting of the match what a, a flare when you strike a match you get a flare up to get the burning going and, and of course what we've got here is the flare up to get the, the, the burning going the match burning as it were and uh, move on to chapter 3 and all this is early days these are the first weeks and days days and weeks that we're in here um, chapter 3 and um, Peter and John go off to the temple for a, a 3 p.m. prayer time they go at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and uh, there was a guy at uh, one of the temple gates and it was the temple gate called beautiful they all had different names and uh, this one was beautiful as far as the temple gate, probably I forget it. Um, and um, but this was called beautiful, and uh, he he was there all the time. He'd been a cripple from birth, and uh, as they passed by, he asked them for money, and Peter said to him, "Silver and gold, I do not have, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk." And this guy got up and started jumping around. And the Bible says that he leapt around praising God. So a quite remarkable healing here. Um, it drew a crowd, obviously. Lo loads of people would have known this guy. He was there most of the time. It drew a crowd. And Peter grabbed the opportunity. He started preaching. And the essence of what he says was that the healing, he, he made it very clear that the healing wasn't because he or John were holy or special. It wasn't anything to do with them at all. He said, this man has been healed by Jesus, and get this, whom you handed over to be murdered. It's quite a thing to say, but they wouldn't let Israel off the hook on this one. And he said, whom you handed over to be killed by Pilate, choosing to release a murderer instead, obviously Barabbas they had the chance to let Brabus um, go free or Jesus go free. They chose Brabus, who was a murderer. And, um, and, and he goes on to tell them that Jesus, whom they had murdered, had been raised from the dead and he had healed this man. Peter goes on to say that he knew that their leaders acted in, in ignorance and kind of like a bit gracious there. And uh, a bit like Jesus, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. They did know what they do, but, but, but it's love covering a multitude of sins, if you see what he means. 
Um, and, and Peter says, but nevertheless they were the means of God fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that Messiah would have to suffer. And probably there he's thinking of Isaiah 53, the, you know, the famous prophecy about the suffering sermon. And he goes on to tell them that they must repent. And he tells them that Jesus will stay in heaven until the time to restore all things comes. Now that's the second coming and the coming of the kingdom, Israel being restored. It says Jesus is going to stay in heaven until it's time to restore all things and, and Israel will be back in again. Okay. Um, and he says as well, and, and, and Jesus is the prophet who Moses predicted would one day come. And uh, he, he goes on to say that that any who don't listen to Jesus will be cut off from among the people. I lost if you don't believe in Jesus. Um, you know, the, 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 the anger of God abides on them, as, as, as Jesus said in John's Gospel. Um, and he tells them that all the Old Testament prophets foretold all of this happening, and all the Jews had to do is read the Old Testament, it was all there. And, uh, and, and, and he said, this is the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. And you remember, God's promise to Abraham, he quotes it, through your offspring shall all the peoples of the earth be blessed. Now, two things. Their offspring, through your offspring, singular. He uses the singular word. So the offspring God's referring to of Abraham wasn't Isaac or Jacob, it was Jesus himself. And that, so through Jesus, all the peoples of the earth the Gentiles, the Gentile church, will be blessed. And he said that Jesus had been sent to them first, Israel. Where salvation is first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. That's what Paul said. That Jesus had been sent to Israel first in order to be that blessing of Abraham to them. And then he defines what the blessing is. Now then, modern day evangelists, well, the blessing is it's peace and it's joy and the Lord will look after you. Uh-uh. The blessing is that each person can turn from their wicked ways. That's the blessing of Abraham. That in the coming of Jesus, we can turn from our wicked ways. That's the greatest blessing God's got for us, holiness. We think it's peace, it's joy, it's, it's this, that and the other. It's not. The greatest thing Having been forgiven of our sins, the greatest thing we can receive from God is a holy life. That's the gospel that they preached. Doesn't go down very well in the 90s, does it? But my goodness, it hasn't changed. Right, okay, chapter 4. Um, well, no, nothing has changed because here, immediately, the priests and the Sadducees, they spring into action and they imprison Peter and John. So Peter and John are arrested by the temple guard. Um, and the reason that they're um, imprisoned is because they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and you'll remember, we've said before, the Sadducees, they were like the liberals. They weren't supernaturalists. The Pharisees were. They believed in miracles. They believed in, in, in angels. They believed in heaven. They believed in the afterlife. So think of it that that's how far I see. But the Sadducees didn't believe any of it. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in an afterlife, anything like that at all. So they were sad, you see. And, and, and that's, that's the way to remember it. So they've had Peter and John arrested. And remember the Sadducees, they were in charge. They ran the priesthood. Not the Pharisees, the Sadducees. So they had the temple guard in their pocket and Peter and John are arrested. But 2,000 people believed because of what Pete, uh, 
Peter had been preaching. So 2,000 more people are now um, converted and become Christians. So 5,000 so far. I mean, the 5,000 would have been men. There'd have been women and children as well, but they wouldn't have been numbered in it. Um, and so the next day, um, Peter and, and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. You remember this was the ruling body of the Jews um, in Jerusalem. And um, Annas was there. Now we saw this when we did the Gospels. Annas was the, the, the rightful high priest. But the Romans didn't like him, all right, so they deposed him and they put his son-in-law, Caiaphas, as acting high priest. So in effect, there were two high priests. There was um, Annas, who should have been, but Rome said he couldn't be, and his son-in-law, who Rome said, you shouldn't be, but we're gonna make you, all right, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so they were there. And uh, remember, this is the Sanhedrin, who Jesus had, had, had been before a few weeks earlier. And, uh, and they were asked straight out by what power and in what name did you do this miracle? Now let me actually read um, what they, they replied. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he has been healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. That's quoting the Old Testament there. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men might be saved. See, what a straightforward gospel they preached. What a dangerous gospel they preached, though, crumbs. It didn't actually go down any better then than it does today in the 90s. The difference is that we feel freer as Christians to not preach the full gospel. They did. It cost them today. It's so easy to be wishy-washy, isn't it? And, uh, you know, but that, that was, was Peter's answer to them. And Luke, Luke tells us that, that, that the Sanhedrin were, were astonished at Peter and John for the reason that they were unschooled and ordinary men. They were fishermen. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they'd have all been very, you know, like intellectual snobs and, and all that, and all the lawyers and blah, blah, blah. But they were a bit gobsmacked that, um, you know, that sort of like mere fishermen could give account of themselves with, with such authority. I mean, of course, um, you know, sort of like the authority they had, they had was, was the power of, of Jesus himself. But uh, eventually, the Sanhedrin decided that they couldn't really do much, and for the simple reason that the healed cripple was standing there. And so what they did is they warned them not to preach about Jesus anymore. They say, right, okay, we'll leave it there, but don't preach anymore about Jesus. Well, Peter and John tell them that they can't help but speak about what God says, you know, rather than man. And they say, look, we can't, no, no, we've we got to say what God says, not what you say. Warn us all you like. We're going to do what God says. And that, that's preached about Jesus. And um, the, the, the Sanhedrin, they, they made various more threats to Peter and John, but had no choice at that point but to actually um, let them go. And uh, Peter and John, having been released, they um, go back to the other believers. And um, I'm, I'm just going to read um, the the last few few verses of um, uh, 
Acts 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he quotes from the writings of David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Then they carry on praying. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were, always, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, what, what a prayer, you know, but that, that's what they were about. And I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter because it just kind of um, gives us an insight into the, the way that the, the, the church at large was living. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Notice they still had possessions, all right, but no one claimed they were his own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, Hi, I'm Beresford, call me Dave. <laughs> names that, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. But that's the way they lived. We'll be back to Barnabas later on. He, he features quite a lot in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Right, now then, as we move on now into chapter 5, and um, actually need to um, read actually what happened here, because this was... Um, Satan tries to get in here. Satan tries to destroy the church from the, out, uh, from the inside. Satan can't destroy the church from the outside. When the church is attacked from the outside, it becomes stronger. Satan attacks the church from the inside through hypocrisy of believers. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's, what's happened here, they, 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 they've sold stuff, they've given a proportion of the proceeds, but they've made out they've given it all. All right, so they've made out they've given more than they actually did, all right? Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? 
and after it was sold wasn't the money at your disposal. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. That's incidentally one of the verses that proves the Holy Spirit is divine. So early he said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you have lied to God. All right, interesting point there. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. So this is the first sin unto death, when God actually kills believers to make an example of them. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Remember, they gave some of the money, and they were free to do that, but made out they'd given all of the money. That was the point, they were lying. They didn't have to sell and give away anything. It was the fact that they made out that they'd given more than they had. Uh, yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried you, your husband, are at the door. They will carry you out also. At, the moment, at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And the Lord, right immediately, he, if, if, if hypocrisy like that had spread, it could have destroyed the church. So God made an example of them. Um, also, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, because of the way they were treating the love feast so outrageously for so long, Paul says actually some of them were dying. The sin unto death was actually being carried out uh, by God on them as well. So, um, you know, this is, is, is kind of like, you know, the, the, when Satan really tries to get into the church and destroy it from the inside. And um, interestingly enough here, verse 11, great fear seized the whole church. It's the first time in Acts that the word church is used, and it's simply the Greek word ecclesia, and it means those who are called people, not buildings, people. And uh, Luke tells us that, that there were amazing miracles worked by the apostles around the temple area, and um, he said that it, even if Peter's shadow fell on people, they were healed. So as Peter walked along, people lying on the ground, paralytics, if his shadow passed over them, they were healed. And uh, all were healed who came or who were brought to him. And, uh, and it says that more and more men and women were saved. So this is such an explosion of, of, of God's power. I mean, equivalent to the explosion of power that they'd been through the ministry of Jesus himself. Now, at this point, the chief priests and the Sadducees get together and they arrest the apostles again. So the, the persecution begins to pick up now and uh, they're put in jail, all right? And uh, obviously the chief priests and the Sadducees, they'd had them arrested, they're chucked in jail, and the next morning they'd meet for the trial. But uh, in the middle of the night, an angel went into the jail and kind of like let them all out. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and um, but of course the next morning all, all the doors were still locked, but the apostles weren't there, you see, and uh, so the next morning the um, you know sort of like the apostles you know sort of go out carry on preaching. Anyway, the Sanhedrin meets and they call for the apostles to be brought in from the cells in in into the court, and of course. Um, you know, sort of like it's reported to them that they're not there. I mean, all the doors were locked, but the apostles, they're gone. And of course, this, this puzzled them greatly. 
And then someone came into the court and said, well, actually, they're, they're back in the market square preaching. And uh, so there's, there's not a lot you can do. However, the Sanhedrin, not to be outdone, sent the temple guards back to arrest them again. And, um, but, but, but this time, the temple guard didn't use force on them. They were a bit polite because they feared possible consequences. So a little bit ginger now. Um, and the high priests questioned them and um, remind them uh, kind of that they've been ordered to stop all this preaching about Jesus and why is it that they were still doing it and um, and also the Sanhedrin objected to the apostles that the apostles were making them out to be guilty of Jesus's murder I mean obviously they were guilty of Jesus's murder but they objected to this you know and on top of all this preaching about Jesus and not only that but you're saying that we're guilty and of course the whole point is that they were guilty and um, I'm just going to read you the Apostles reply to them on this and um, Peter and the other Apostles replied we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, the apostles, they, they, they say, yeah, but you did murder Jesus, and you are guilty. And, you know, sort of like, we, we are going to, to keep doing what God says. We're not going to do what men says if it goes against what God says. Now, at this point, the priests just wanted to kill them, have them murdered, there and then. Um, but there was a particular guy on the Sanhedrin, a bloke called Gamaliel, now, he, he's important because he was actually Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. He was his personal teacher. He had personally taught Paul, alright? But what Gamaliel argued, he persuaded them not to kill them. And the argument he used is he said, look, if they're not of God, then they'll fizzle out anyway. And he refers to a couple of messianic movements that had happened in years before. And uh, which had kind of been put down. There was one bloke called Judas, and, and he was thought to be a messianic figure. And there was another one called Judas the Galilean. And these were two like messianic movements that had sprung up in previous years. Uh, but eventually, Judas and then Judas the Galilean, they were killed, and then the movement died out. Okay. So what Gamaliel's saying, look, if they're not of God, they'll fizzle out just like that one, because after all, their leader is dead, isn't he? We did crucify Jesus, didn't we? Or, he says, but if they are of God, you can't stop them anyhow, so don't bother to try. So, on the strength of that argument, which sounds good, but it's not really, it's just total sitting on the fence. That's all it is, it, it, this guy's a politician, alright. Um, you know, but anyway, he persuaded them not to actually have the apostles murdered. So what they did is they had them flogged. A real, real bit of justice here. Hey, we're going to be really good to you, I'm not going to murder you, we're going to flog you. And this was vicious, this was the 39 lashes. So, I mean, the disciples are, are, are flogged and they're told not to preach about Jesus anymore and then they let them go. And I'm just going to read the last couple of verses of chapter 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing 
because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Their backs are in shreds. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So, obviously, the Jews are beginning to realise that persecution isn't going to stop um, these guys at all. Right, now then, we move on to chapter 6, and we now move forward around 18 months, all right? Um, so we, we've kind of, we, we've done the first few weeks. We now move forward a year, year and a half, two years. It's hard to tell exactly, but now we have a jump and a couple of years now has, has, has passed. And, um, and what we have now is that um, another problem arises in the church and kind of like the church is threatened uh, by things going on within it. And what's actually happening here um, is that the, the church looked after widows of believers, all right, you know, so these women, they were believers, but they were widows, they had no one to look after them, all right. And so what was happening was that the church had its own social security type system, all right. Now, what was happening um, is that, that, that in Jerusalem, these widows would have comprised two groups of Jews. There'd have been the widows of Jews who had lived in the dispersion and were called Grecians or the Greek Jews, all right? They had originated from outside Jerusalem but ended up in there. And then you had the, the Hebrew Jews, their widows, the ones who had lived in Jerusalem or you know, in the land inside. So the Grecian Jews they were the minority, all right? The Hebraic Jews were the majority, okay? Now, what's happening is that the, the Grecian widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I mean, you know, there's nothing to say that anyone's doing it deliberately, but they're just kind of getting left out. They're the minority, and obviously the kind of like the logistics, the organization is all going awry here. And so what happened was that the Greek uh, Jews in the church complain to the apostles officially about this. Now, what they did is the apostles gathered the whole church together, and um, you know, remember there were you know sort of like loads and loads of them, you know, all broken down into house churches, but they got loads of them together. And what the apostles said is that we 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 can't, you know, sort of like the time has come for us to stop overseeing everything that goes on. Because as you can see, it's all going wrong. It's too much for us, all right? So what they were saying, the best thing is, you know, let us concentrate more on teaching and preaching and doing the pastoral blah, 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 all, all that. And we need other people who can do more of this practical stuff to make sure that no one's left out in the distribution of food, etc., etc. So what they did is that they proposed the church chose seven men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who could take over and be responsible for the practical duties in Jerusalem. Um, and obviously, from other parts of the New Testament, we see that these were eventually called deacons, which is just the word for servants, all right. And, uh, you know, so, so the apostles said, you choose, we'll appoint them. So the church at large, which was mostly made up of Hebrew Jews, not Greek Jews, all right, they appointed, they, they chose seven men. And having chosen them, 
the apostles appointed them and said, right, you're the deacons, all right. Now then, these seven guys were Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas the proselyte. So all of them were Jews except Nicholas. He was a Gentile, but he'd become a Jew and now he'd become a Christian. Right. Now then, what's significant is that all seven names there are Greek. And that because it was the Greeks who were the minority in the church who were being left out, the church at large chose seven of people from the minority. I mean, now that is such a wonderful example of giving way to others. Do you see what I mean? Um, that's such, and that's such great public relations as well. The minority in the church have been overlooked. So the church says, right, you, there's a minority here in the church, we'll appoint you to the position of, of sorting out. That's great. There wasn't any way, well, I mean, we're the Hebrew, Jew, Christians, and we're the proper ones, and we're going to do this. I mean, they, they had the casting vote, as it were, so there were so many of them. But they appointed from the minority group. That's putting others before yourself. That's, that's great. That's excellent. That's self-denial. Fantastic. And so another potential threat is overcome. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, by the sin unto death, this overcome just by self-giving and self-sacrifice on behalf of the majority Hebrew Christians. And, uh, and Luke tells us that there was continued growth in the church. And also, at this point, a lot of priests started to become Christians as well. Now, he, he moves on now to tell us a bit about Stephen. Uh, Stephen, we just saw him, one of the deacons. Um, he was going about working miracles as well. Up to now, only the apostles worked miracles. But now, Stephen works miracles. And this gives the lie to the teaching you sometimes hear that only the apostles work miracles and that miracles were only for the apostles then. Silly, because, I mean, Stephen was not an apostle. He's working miracles as well. And, and but, you know, Luke says that he was full of God's grace and power. And uh, opposition arises against him and false witnesses are set up against him and, and they start stirring the people up and accusing him of speaking against Moses and speaking against the temple and oh, it's all, you know, all the pack of lies. Um, but he is now arrested and he is taken before the Sanhedrin on these trumped up charges. And, um, but, but, but Luke says that, that Stephen, he comes in, he appears before them and Luke says, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And it's good to know this guy looked like me, isn't it? And, uh, you know, make, makes you feel closer to him. Anyway, in chapter 7, all right, we, we now move on to the actual trial. And the high priest calls upon him to speak in his own defence. I mean, all the trumped-up charges have been there. And the high priest says, OK, right, what have you got to say for yourself? Now... What Stephen does is he, he goes through like a potted history of the nation of Israel. Abraham and Joseph in Egypt and the slavery in Egypt and them being delivered through Moses and, and that Moses had taught that God would send another prophet like him. Um, that would be Messiah. And then he goes on to say how the people rebelled against Moses you know, you see where he's going, that they rebelled against the first prophet, so you're rebelling against the 
blah 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 you see so the people rebelled against Moses and and even while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai the people were below making a golden calf you know rebel 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 and then he ends up with with the glory of, of God as revealed through David and Solomon in the temple because remember people have been stitching him up saying oh he preaches against Moses and he preaches against the temple well here he's proving he doesn't do any such thing he's totally loyal to Moses he's totally loyal to the whole of the Old Testament so you know I mean obviously he's managing here to fit in you know that the accusations are false and and you know all, all that and um, and then I'll, I'll actually read his his climax, and um, you know he, he he says quite a lot. But this is this is how he ends. You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you you can just tell he wants to be released, can't you? Oh well, I'll, I'll play the soft touch. So they let me go. You stiff-necked people, he said. You're just like your fathers. Remember, he's gone through the history of Israel rebelling against God. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Do you detect an ongoing theme here? You who received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now this is fantastic. Up till now, what's Jesus been doing? He's been seated at the right hand of the Father. We now have the first Christian martyr Jesus stands up for him. Isn't that incredible? Jesus stands up. He's giving a standing ovation here to Stephen. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now that's 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 incredible, isn't it? They're stoning him, and it just proves really that you can't kill a Christian. The worst you can do is rock them to sleep. Right. Okay. Chapter eight. As a result of this, renewed persecution um, breaks out, and now the church, the believers, are now scattered away from Jerusalem and throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, do you remember how Jesus has said to them that they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth? Now, up to now, they've all been in Jerusalem. And indeed, a lot of them stay in Jerusalem. Most of the apostles do. But now the church is scattered. And isn't it interesting how Jesus arranges 
for them to obey the command Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth through persecution. It's persecution that pushes them out to now spread the gospel outside of Israel to the then known world. However, the apostles remain in Jerusalem. Stephen is buried and of course forever honoured as the first Christian martyr and um, a young man, a young Pharisee called Saul, whom we've just seen, emerges as a major persecutor and this guy, um, Saul, organises this persecution against the Christians, dragging both men and women to jail. We now go to another of the seven deacons, one of the uh, guy called Philip. Now he's down in Samaria, all right, and he's preaching the gospel there. And Luke tells us that, that, that many were healed and delivered of evil spirits and, and saved. And there was a sorcerer there called Simon. In some translations it calls him Simon Magus. But the Magus, he was a magi, he was a sorcerer, a magi, all right. So he was a Jewish occultist in the tradition of the occult line of the magi, all right. And he had quite a following amongst the Jews because of his occult powers. They thought he was of God. In fact, he wasn't. But um, a lot of the people in Samaria were converted as um, as. Philip preached the gospel, and this guy was as well. Simon, the sorcerer, he was converted and he was baptised. And um, as soon as Peter and John heard about this, they were back in Jerusalem, this is in Samaria, they came up, and because now you've got the beginning of the church in Samaria, so the apostles come up from Jerusalem and they lay hands on them all so that they were baptised with the Holy Spirit. And you maintaining the link that although this is Samaria this is all coming from the same place it all goes back to the apostles in Jerusalem and um, and when Simon sees this power of God being imparted through laying on of hands he offers them money if they'll teach him how to do it because he realized that this power of God is greater than the power he knew so he offers to um, buy it off of them um, Peter gives him quite a quite a rebuke really gives him a talking to on that but he duly repents of it, and uh, you know, so he, he comes through, all right, gets to live as his occultism. But isn't it interesting that he too, like everyone else, was baptised on profession of conversion? There was no time period, no let's test him out, or anything like that. Even though he was an occultist, he said, I want to follow Jesus, so they baptised him. There's no, you know, testing time or anything like that. They baptised him immediately. No questions asked, no probation period, anything like that. And, uh, you know, so that just goes to show how different the early churches towards baptism and often churches are today. Um, and then Peter and John stay in Samaria for a while and they do teaching. They, like, get foundational teaching in the church. Um, and then they go back to Jerusalem, but they preach in loads of different villages in Samaria on, on the way back. Now, in the meanwhile, Philip is directed by an angel, alright, because it's still the explosion that's getting everything going. Um, an angel directs Philip down south to the road that ran between Jerusalem and Gaza. You remember Gaza, where the Philistines were, Samson, Gaza, where he's chained to their temple and killed them all? Uh, Gaza was on the Mediterranean coast. It's just 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So Simon, uh, sorry, Philip has been directed by an angel down there. 
and he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch. Now this was a really high official and uh, he, he was actually Queen Candace's treasurer, the, you know, the Queen of Ethiopia. So, you know, he, he was like Chancellor of the Exchequer of that country. And uh, he's, he's, you know, Philip is, is told by the Holy Spirit to go up to the chariot. So the chariot's going along and Philip walks along and he hears that this eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 out loud. It often did, they, they, they'd read out loud. And that's the thing on the suffering servant. You know, he was despised, rejected by men. And uh, Philip sort of like says to him, like trotting alongside the, you know, sort of like the, the carriage, like he says, um, you know, do you know um, what you're reading? Do, do you understand it? And, uh, and the eunuch says, well, no, unless I have someone to explain it to me, I don't know what it's about. So Philip tells him all about Jesus, how Jesus was the fulfilment of that Old Testament prophecy. Anyway, they found water, and the eunuch says, can I be baptised? Because he's become a believer. And what did Philip do? He said, well, hang on, right, okay, we'll fix up some classes. No, he baptised him, simple as that. And, um, and after he baptised him, the Holy Spirit whisks him away. <laughs> so this is kind of like, this is, he, he got beamed up, Scotty, as it were, and it was beam me up, Holy Spirit, all right? And he got beamed to Azotus. Um, now, Azotus... In the Old Testament, it was called Ashdod. So he's, he's beamed to Azotos, or Ashdod, and that was 20 miles north up the coast of where Gaza was. So he's beamed 20 miles north, bang, just like that. Um, and then what he does is he travels up from there, right north up, up the Mediterranean coast, preaching all the time, you know, preaching at all the towns and the cities, until he completes a 60-mile trip north when he gets to Caesarea. And uh, then we, that, that's it, but presumably he goes back to Jerusalem or whatever. Right, now we come to chapter 9. I'm going to read the first bit of this because this is, this is important. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters for the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called themselves, the way, Christians, nice, Jesus, the way, truth and life, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, he said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, 
appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food he regained his strength. So we're a couple of years now after Pentecost, we're two years in and now Saul becomes a Christian. And he spends time with the disciples um, in Damascus, which is Syria, where, where he was heading. And immediately, from, he, he starts preaching in the synagogue, proving from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. And of course, everyone was astonished because he was well known as a persecutor of the church. So here, Paul begins his ministry up in Syria. Now, Luke tells us that after many days, and if we cross-reference this with Paul's letter to the Galatians, we know that it was three years later. So now, this after many days, Saul has got converted, started preaching in Syria, we now go forward three years. And during that three years, um, he spent some of the time in Arabia before returning back to Damascus, all right? So what happened was, three years has now passed, and the Jews in Damascus plan to kill him. But Saul finds out about their plot, and so the Christians there say, look, it's, it's, it's best that we get you out, okay? Um, and so they, they, you know, like the people who want to kill him are keeping watch on the city gates for him. Um, but what they do is that, that, that the Christians there, they lowered him through a hole in the wall, and, and, and he got out like that um, in the dead of night. And he went to Jerusalem, and again from Galatians, we know that when he got there, all the apostles were away, except Peter and also James, the Lord's brother. Jesus, his brother, was there as well. And, um, and although James wasn't technically an apostle, he was accepted as one, as it were. Um, but Barnabas, remember Barnabas, son of encouragement, he kind of takes Saul under his wing here. Um, he's actually going to become you know, Paul's future co-worker, although he doesn't know it now. And Barnabas takes Paul under his wings. He, he's not scared of him, uh, knows that he's genuinely got converted. And he takes him to Peter and James and a short testifies on his behalf. And uh, Paul, Paul stays there a while, evangelising. Um, but the Grecian Jews in Jerusalem, the Greeks, they, they decide to kill him. So um, what they do, they, they, the, the Christians, they take him as far as Caesarea, which was northwest of Jerusalem on the uh, uh, Samaritan coast, and uh, they, they take him up there, and they send him to his hometown of Tarsus, which is where he came from. That was in southern Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and Luke tells us that then that the, that the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, so that's kind of the Israel region, enjoyed a time of peace and grew. So now persecution in Israel against the Christians subsides for a while. Now, Luke now takes us back to Peter. He's travelling around Judea, visiting all the new churches and preaching and teaching, blah, blah, blah. And we pick him up in Lydda, uh, 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And there was a, a paralytic there called Aeneas. And Peter, through Peter, Jesus healed him. And uh, everyone in that area who saw Aeneas healed, like, you know, turned to the Lord, became Christians. Now, 12 miles away, like 
northwest up on the coast was a place called Joppa and there was a woman there who had died and two men sent for Peter at Lydda to ask if he'd come over to Joppa because this woman had died. Now Joppa, okay, is now called Jaffa. It's a suburb of Tel Aviv and it's where the oranges come from. Jaffa oranges? Joppa, that's what it was called then. So Peter goes there to Joppa or Jaffa where the oranges are and he raises her from the dead and he became known all over Joppa and, and of course many people um, believed in, in the Lord and became Christians as a result. So there we've got Peter in Lydda. While he's there he heals a paralytic called Aeneas. People come from Joppa, Jaffa where the oranges come from, tell him that this woman has died, Peter goes there and um, raises her from the dead and lots of people became Christians. And I, I, I sort of found that when I was like preparing this and going through that, I just that affected me. That, there's just something about that that affected me. And it, it's all like, you know, sometimes when you get like these Christian singers and stuff like if you hear them talk, you know, talk about, well, the, you know, the Lord gave me a song or the Lord gave me this, that or the other. Well, it's sort of strange because, you know, this woman who'd been raised from the dead, blah, blah, blah. And it, it sort of, I, I felt moved to verse. So let, let me, this is, there was a young woman from Joppa who peeled oranges with a massive great chopper but the fruit would just slip and this gave her the pip so she went to Burger King instead for a big whopper I just felt the Lord gave me that it, it, it kind of fitted so anyway Peter has like been used to, to raise her from the dead and what he does now he stays in Joppa for a while and uh, he, he stays with a, a tanner um, called Simon, a tanner, this was someone who worked hide skin, or alternatively, I think also he wrote that song after Sixpence, didn't he? Was, oh my um, and so now, in the narrative, we're about seven years after Saul's conversion. So now, with Peter in Joppa, alright, staying with Simon, the, the tanner, uh, we're now 10 years since Pentecost. So in the first nine chapters we've actually progressed on average a year a chapter. It doesn't work like that because you get a clump of chapters and then it goes forward a bit for another chapter. But it's important to realise because it's easy to read the Acts of the Apostles and to think the whole thing happened in the first two weeks and then you look at our church and you think ah <laughs> see. But you mustn't get, it was over a long period of time and of course the whole of the Acts of the Apostles happened over a much larger period of time and obviously as we go through it, and there'll be two more talks on, on the Acts, we'll, we'll be seeing the chronology of it and, and, and how the timing uh, kind of works out. And so we're now 10 years into the life of the church, 10 years after the day of Pentecost. And what we've basically seen so far is we've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the coming into being primarily of the Jewish church. Now, what we're going to see next week from chapter 10 onwards as we progress is that at this point with Peter now in Joppa, 
at this point we're going to see that what's just around the corner now is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. So we've had Pentecost on the Jews ten years earlier in Jerusalem, but next time from chapter 10 onwards we see the beginning of the spread of the church amongst the Gentiles and see how the church becomes from that point onwards primarily a Gentile affair. And it's next time that we're going to be seeing Peter present at an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Gentiles that marks the beginning of the Gentile wing of the church, which eventually takes over from the Jewish wing of the church. And so we see the birth of the Gentile church that replaced the nation of Israel, Israel being under the judgment of God for rejecting Jesus as Messiah. It's at the end of the period of time that God has allocated for the church to replace Israel, and we're still in that time, we don't know when it's going to end, it will end with the rapture, could be any day, alright? Then, at the end of that time, Israel is grafted back in as Jesus removes the church to heaven, Israel is grafted back in and this issues eventually in the second coming and Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. The kingdom that we saw in chapter 1, the disciples saying to Jesus, hey Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? So we're seeing here all the time the significance that the Acts of the Apostles, which is really Luke's Gospel part 2, how the Acts of the Apostles is written by the only Gentile biblical writer. But it had to be a Gentile writer because it's the book that tells us how the Gospel, the Kingdom of God, was taken from Israel and passed, albeit temporarily, over to the Gentiles. So it just had to be the one lone Gentile who wrote Luke and Acts. And so even in the authorship of each independent book, you can just see how God, every aspect of the Bible, was planned in advance down to the kind of this slightest detail. Right, so we'll finish there and we'll be back for the second talk on Acts next time.